and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the global struggle between democracy and autocracy, characterized by yesterday's virtual summit between President Biden and Xi Jinping, and explore the findings in a new study from VDEM, a Swedish nonprofit that tracks the levels of democracy in countries based on a number of indicators. Joining us to assess the backsliding among a number of democracies that are U.S. allies, Turkey, Hungary, Israel and the Philippines, is Thomas Carruthers, the Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he co-directs the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, which analyzes the state of democracy in the world and the efforts by the United States and other countries to promote democracy. He's the author or editor of 10 critically acclaimed books, including most recently, Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization, and we will discuss what is behind the backsliding, as well as the need to clean up our own house, since Trump's GOP appears bent on making a mockery of American democracy through vote rigging, leading to the possibility of one-party minority rule by an autocrat who, like Putin, Orban, and Erdogan, is also a kleptocrat. Then, with Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco moving corporate criminal enforcement from the deep freezer to the front burner at the Department of Justice, we will speak with Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow-the-money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. She joins us to discuss her article at the Washington Monthly, Biden and Garland Turn Up the Heat on White Collar Crime. Then finally, with a new report from the Congressional Budget Office outlining three different ways to cut $1 trillion from the Pentagon over the next decade, we'll speak with Mandy Smithberger, the Director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, about her article at Tom Dispatch, the Pentagon's budget should be cut by at least $1 trillion, but war profiteers won't go quietly. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Thomas Carruthers, who's a Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he co-directs the Democracy, Conflict and Government Program, which analyzes the state of democracy in the world and the efforts by the United States and other countries to promote democracy. He also oversees the Carnegie Endowment's European activities, including Carnegie Europe in Brussels, and is the author or editor of 10 critically acclaimed books, including most recently, Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Carruthers. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's an article in the New York Times 
about this uh, Swedish group that have, have a new study, the, the Swedish group being VDEM, and it's a nonprofit that tracks countries' level of democracy across a host of indicators. And there's also a, a major article at The Atlantic by Ann Applebaum on the extent to which despots seem to be winning in, in the global competition between democracy and autocracy. So let's begin with that broader landscape, uh, Tom, and that is, would you consider then the struggle between democracy and autocracy, between the rule of law and criminality versus democracy, the real struggle in this world, in this sort of post-Cold War non-ideological world? You know, I think there are two big struggles that are a little bit different from each other. The first is that democracies are trying hard to, to work. Uh, we, we know it in our own country, it's very hard to make democracy work. And autocracies are, some of them, doing fairly well in terms of self-confidence and assertiveness. So one struggle is, as you say, can democracies really make themselves work well and be persuasive? And what's going to happen with these autocracies that are pushing themselves out around the world? But the other one is, is a broader struggle, which is citizens everywhere in every kind of political system are increasingly unhappy with their political elites. At Carnegie, we do something called the Carnegie Global Protest Tracker, which tracks major protests around the world. And what you see is just an increasing pace of protests over the last 10 years in all kinds of political systems. So you could look at it through an ideological lens, democracy versus autocracy, or you can take a different view, which is that people are just not happy with the political systems they have of any type. Well, there's also another dimension, I think, here in the United States, isn't there? Democracy versus plutocracy. That's part of what's making citizens so angry in many countries. Anti-corruption is one of the biggest drivers of political protest in the world. Over, We did a little study a couple of years ago that found over 10% of governments in the world had fallen because of anti-corruption energy and anger from citizens, or anger about corruption and a push for anti-corruption. That's huge number. 10% of the world's governments had fallen because of public anger over corruption. In many cases, that's entrenched elites who, you know, are robbing the citizens blind. Well, we just had the Pandora Papers, which yeah. I think <laughs> makes your point, does it not? Yeah, well, these leaks of the Pandora Papers, the Panama Papers showed the kind of really deep, dark networks of enablers of corruption that uh, are operating for many different countries and the depth of the corruption in many places and the multi sort of hydra-headed nature of corruption with its links across many different countries and different kinds of domains. It's, it's pretty sinister. Well, I suppose you could describe the virtual summit that took place on Monday evening between President Xi of China and President Biden to some extent about what you were just talking about, and that is how some of the autocracies are basically challenging democracy by saying that, you know, that we get things done. And if you compare the sort of efficient autocracy of China compared to the messy democracy of the United States, particularly when it comes to President Biden, who's tanking in the polls simply because of the sausage-making of democracy, right? It's, it's pretty in our face, isn't it? Well, I'd be careful in, you know, China is efficient in some ways when they want to build a subway system in Shanghai. They got it done pretty quickly. But there's a lot of corruption in China. That's why they've had a, you know, a long anti-corruption campaign that's prosecuted thousands of people. China is a messier system than it may appear from the outside. So we shouldn't imagine it's some kind of Swiss watch of autocracy. 
And the United States, yes, our political process is very divided and very dysfunctional in many ways, but other parts of governance in the United States, you know, actually work relatively well. So we should be careful not to play up that it's um, messy democracy versus highly efficient autocracy. Both the Chinese and the American governments are feeling pressure from their citizens to deliver what the citizens want. Not saying they're in the same boat or the same pickle, but I think we should be careful not to see them as polar opposites uh, in terms of kind of citizen happiness or in terms of efficiency and that kind of thing. No, I think you can make the case that uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is kind of a mafia. I know there's a lot of corruption in terms of parking money overseas for former government officials. But I just did an interview yesterday with Perry Link, a China scholar who uh, was blacklisted because he he was a recipient of the Tiananmen Papers, a a leak from a high-level Chinese official back at the time of Tiananmen Massacre. And he pointed out that up until recently, the Chinese government was spending as much on internal surveillance and security as they were on defense, which is just extraordinary. So... This is a society that may be trying to tell the world that it gets things done, but it's also a society that's clearly afraid of its own people. Yeah, I get a little tired when people say to me, well, look at the popularity ratings of President Xi or President Putin in Russia. And I I say, you know, if they're so popular, why do they have to invest such enormous energy and resources into suppressing the views of their citizens and smashing on the head or in other nasty ways anybody who speaks out against them? It just doesn't sound like a self-confident, highly popular leader to me. I'm not denying that many citizens in China have benefited in some ways from the economic successes. But again, I think we should be careful of thinking, boy, those autocrats are really popular and us Democrats are just flailing around in unpopularity. Well, that leads, though, to whether or not you can export democracy, whether you can make it the sort of ultimate soft power issue, since obviously a hard power conflict, we don't want that. The nuclear war, nobody wants that. And I think she and Biden talked a lot about Taiwan. I don't know that they agreed on it. But nevertheless, I mean, we tried to export democracy during the Cold War. And as you pointed out, that was a... <laughs> In the New York Times article, we were a little bit hypocritical about that because we supported all kinds of repressive governments in the competition with the Soviet Union. Democracy isn't, you know, instant coffee that can just be stirred up in a, you know, in a cup with some water and the democratic powder. And it isn't something you can just simply export. You can stand for democracy in the world and establish democracies, try to stand for democracies, not just the United States, but Canada, Sweden, Germany, the UK and others. Try to stand for democracy and say this is a decent way to treat your people and a reasonable way to run a country. And then you can try to support in thoughtful and careful ways those who are standing up for democracy in their own countries. That's not the same as exporting democracy, trying to take it forcibly to a system um, uh, where you don't have local actors who are struggling for it. So I think, you know, we often make the mistake, you know, thinking that it's just the United States that cares about democracy around the world. Actually, the European Union invests deeply in democracy support activities, as does, like I say, countries I mentioned, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and, and lots of others. So this isn't a unique American preoccupation. 
but we have sometimes presented it as though we're the heroic eagle sort of circling the you know the field of the world and with a unique value of democracy and that's a mistake plenty of other democracies are worth paying attention to and thinking about how they do things so we can stand for democracy but we shouldn't try to pretend that we stand alone or stand above others and we should try to support like i say in careful and thoughtful ways but not impose not export and not do this through violent means and again, I'm speaking with Thomas Carruthers, who's a Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he co-directs the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, which analyzes the state of democracy in the world and the efforts by the United States and other countries to promote democracy. He also oversees the Carnegie Endowment's European activities, including Carnegie Europe in Brussels, and is the author-editor of 10 critically acclaimed books, including most recently, Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. So when I mentioned the hypocrisy of during the Cold War, the U.S. promoting democracy at the same time, making you know alliances with all kinds of despots in the name of keeping the Soviets at bay, I suppose in a nutshell, it's the argument about realpolitik, realpolitik being the notion that a country doesn't act according to its ideals, but according to its interests. And I think Biden has a, doesn't he have a real realpolitik problem at the moment? And that is, He's getting slammed over inflation, which is largely being caused by the precipitous run-up in the price of gas, which many th- people, and including Biden, he hinted at, at a CNN town hall recently, that it was Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, the murderous young about-to-be-king. You know, as normally, Saudi leaders have always obliged American presidents to help them out in election times by pumping extra gas to lower the price to flood the market. And apparently MBS is refusing to do this, but Biden doesn't want to talk to this pariah. And to me, that's a pretty stark example, is it not? So how does a leader proceed here between principle and interest? And in this case, the interest of getting reelected, because clearly MBS favors Trump and his best friend, Jared Kushner, etc. So how does Biden proceed as a leader of a democracy? in this case? You know, every American president uh, faces tensions between uh, values and in- values and interests uh, in foreign policy, uh, as well as domestic policy. It's just part of political life. You see the Biden administration now really sincerely trying to upgrade U.S. support for democracy and rights in the world after basically a disastrous period under the Trump administration, which you had a U.S. president fawning over dictators in other countries. They're trying to upgrade U.S. support, but at the same time, they need some of these alliances. They feel they need a close alliance with the government of Egypt, which is not democratic, with the government of Thailand, that's not democratic, with the government of Saudi Arabia. And so this tension between values and interests, there isn't some magic solution to it, but it comes, I think a good approach comes from acknowledging to the world saying, look, we're trying to stand for democracy. We're not perfect ourselves at home. We have some uncomfortable relationships abroad. We're trying to talk to those security partners and say, we think you could do better. But we acknowledge that, you know, um, there are tensions in our own policy as well. And I think if one is forthcoming about those things, it helps take some of the pressure off the accusations of hypocrisy and say, you know, this is hard. We're working on it too. But at least we're working on it. At least we're trying. We're not cynically 
pursuing policies abroad that purposely uh, empower authoritarians without thinking hard, do we need to do that or are there ways to temper that and so forth? So unfortunately, you know, politics is the business of the real world and the real world is full of tensions and contradictions. So there's something about being honest about them, being thoughtful about them, trying to minimize them and not being too sanctimonious about it all. So let's turn to the VDEM, Swedish-based uh, nonprofit study on democracy and how much Washington-aligned countries are backsliding currently at the double of the rate of non-allies. This is the data that's coming from this VDEM study. And the backsliding allies of the U.S. are Turkey, Hungary, Israel, and the Philippines as examples. What can the U.S. do in terms of that kind of backsliding? Obviously, Erdogan, yeah, I mean, is, is there a way that you can... <laughs> work for yeah. democracy in this country against the incumbent? I mean, well, uh, I mean, yeah, no, there isn't. You can't just, you know, try to go against the incumbent and try to push him out of power. That would be inappropriate and also ineffective. But first of all, we have to make clear that, you know, in a place like, say, the Philippines, which is one of the cases uh, mentioned in this study, the Philippines has been moving backward under the leadership of Rodrigo Duterte in terms of adherence to democratic norms. But it's not because it's allied with the United States. That's sort of an internal push within the Philippines. Now, as you say, could the United States do something about that, try to blunt that that push. Um, President Obama tried a bit and tried to object a bit when Duterte first came to power. Trump didn't care much about that, didn't do much. Under Biden, the U.S. is back to sort of raising concerns about, you know, some of the lawless behavior of Philippine security forces. So you've got to raise your concerns. So, for example, in India, another U.S. ally that's been moving in a bad direction on democracy, when Secretary of State Blinken this summer went to New Delhi, met with Prime Minister Modi, he did raise democracy issues and say, we, the United States, are concerned about what we see as some of the treatment of Muslims and other issues in your country. But we think it's in your self-interest not to go down that path. We're not telling you that we're perfect and that you should be perfect. But what we are saying is, as a friend, we see you going down a direction that in our experience leads to greater violence, greater instability, and you'll make a less good partner for the United States. So I think that's a good way to approach it. Put it in terms of the self-interest of the other country. Don't sound sanctimonious about it, but note that we care and we'd rather have allies who are more democratic rather than less democratic. But what explains the fact that in the 1990s, 19 allies grew more democratic, including Turkey and South Korea, but lately, as this study indicates, there's mm -hmm. been this backsliding. Well, there's a general trend of backsliding in the world. Starting in around 2005 or so, something what Larry Diamond, the scholar at Stanford, has called a democratic recession has swept through the world in which several dozen countries have moved backwards. So there is a general pattern there. And in most cases, I think the explanation for that is no sort of single, you know, single factor. But in most cases, it's democracies that uh, were fairly shaky to start with and in which they're failing to provide what citizens want in terms of reasonably competent governance, maybe failing to provide enough, you know, equitable development and high levels of inequality are bothering people and so forth. And so they're stumbling or else they've elected leaders who just uh, are not stopped by the rule of law or not stopped by elections and just smash the institutions like Duterte in some ways and rule in the way they want. So the backsliding is mostly the weakness and failure of these attempted democracies. Um, and that's not 
per se the U.S. fault, but it's something, as I've mentioned, the U.S. can try to limit a bit in the U.S. and other democracies. So I don't think, I wasn't that surprised when I read the study to learn that many U.S. allies have been moving backward democratically. The fact that more, maybe a higher percentage are moving backward democratically than non-U.S. allies, I'm not sure how one explains that or how significant that is per se. Um, sort of depends on how you choose the group of allies and so forth. Um, but the overall phenomenon of democratic backsliding is a big story, and it is something that, you know, affects countries as diverse as Brazil, India, Turkey, the Philippines, and even the United States in some ways in recent years. Well, let's just, in the last minute here, to focus on that, the Republican Party, which is now controlled by Donald Trump, is involved in massive voter suppression uh, on many levels, so gerrymandering, they could win the House before one vote is cast on Election Day, all kinds of suppression. After the election, um, Republican legislatures in various states would be able to count, certify the vote. And if they don't like it, they could overturn it. And also, there's a movement underway to harass neutral poll workers and install them with partisan people like the uh, the cyber ninjas we saw in Arizona. So we have a real problem in this country, do we not, with our own democracy? Yes, we do. And I think everybody who cares about democracy in the United States is concerned. We need electoral integrity in this country, but integrity, which means that everybody has confidence in the system and there's no question about the nonpartisanship of those who administer the elections. We need respect for basic democratic norms. Um, we need respect for tolerance, for moderation and so forth. And, you know, we feel all kinds of stresses on the system coming out of last year's election. It is just can't forget, this is totally unprecedented to have the loser of a presidential election refuse to accept the result and then dedicate himself and convert many people in his party to a cause of trying to reverse or to continue to question that election. Unprecedented. And it's just obviously terrible for American democracy. Well, Thomas Carruthers, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Carruthers, who's a Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he co-directs the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, which analyzes the state of democracy in the world and the efforts by the United States and other countries to promote democracy. He also oversees the Carnegie Endowment's European activities, including Carnegie Europe in Brussels, and is the author or editor of 10 critically acclaimed books, including most recently, Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco is moving corporate criminal enforcement from the deep freezer to the front burner at the Department of Justice. Real friends, how many of us, how many of us, how many jealous Real friends, there's not many of us We smile at each other, but how many honest Trust issues, switch up the number I can't be bothered, I cannot blame you For having an angle Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters And this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Jennifer Taub Who's a legal scholar and advocate Whose writing focuses on follow the money matters Promoting transparency and opposing corruption She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress And is currently a professor of law At the Western New England University School of Law And her latest book is Big Dirty Money Making White Collar Criminals Pay Now out in paperback And she has an article at the Washington Monthly Biden and Garland turn up the heat on white-collar crime. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub. It's great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and I'd say it's about time to turn up the heat on white-collar crime. We've had a white-collar criminal in the White House for four years, and now he controls the Republican Party. And one of his chief acolytes, who he pardoned, has just been indicted by the Department of Justice, and he's defying the House subpoena from the Select Committee investigating January the 6th. And he, of course, is Stephen Bannon, of course, is a classic white-collar criminal, having bilked a bunch of Trump supporters out of money to build the wall down on the border with Mexico. So it's pretty rife, is it not? So tell us about this shot across the bow coming from the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco. Yes. So Lisa Monaco, as a Deputy Attorney General, is in a really important role historically when it comes to corporate and white-collar crime. And you might, you might recall that previous uh, deputy attorney generals are the people who help establish what's known as the prosecution principles for, um, for deciding when it makes sense to either prosecute, ignore, or settle with a large business enterprise caught evading the law. And um, our most recent uh, DAG, or Deputy Attorney General, um, was Ron Rosenstein. Um, And I shouldn't say the most recent. The most recent one under Trump who had an impact on the prosecution policy was Ron Rosenstein. And unlike Lisa Monaco, um, when he spoke at a large kind of uh, legal industry event, he turned down the temperature Um, and spoke in such lulling, um, comforting tones that I think he may have even put the audience um, to sleep. Um, And it was the attorney general under President Obama, who previously, when he was deputy attorney general, um, came up with the collateral consequences memo, the so-called later under his watch, the too big to fail proposition that we could not actually prosecute large businesses for fear um, of the impact it would have on employees and customers and suppliers and the economy. Um, So this is why I have to say why she's in such an important role. And what she did um, as a keynote, virtual keynote speech before this um, American Bar Association on white collar crime, she said that, you know, the party is over, that enforcement does ebb and flow, um, but they are making it very clear that it's not business as usual and that if you're a corporation is caught up um, in an investigation, unlike before, the Department of Justice is absolutely going to look at the past record. They're not going to keep doing these so-called deferred prosecution agreements or non-prosecution agreements time and time again if you keep reoffending. You're not going to keep getting an opportunity again for the Justice Department to look the other way. And even more impressively, um, they're once again looking for cooperation. They're looking for um, the company to turn over the names of everybody that's involved, not just people they handpick to say we're involved. Well, In short, what your article suggests is that Lisa Monaco now is essentially 
bringing to the table that corporate criminal enforcement has moved from the deep freezer to the front burner. That's true. I mean, it was absolutely moribund under Donald Trump, who was more often was pardoning white-collar criminals. In fact, he pardoned a whole slew of them um, right right uh, around Valentine's Day of 2020, and then as a parting gift before he left office. And one you mentioned, you know, his friend uh, Steve Bannon and uh, Mike Flynn and many others that he issued pardons to. There was not a crackdown. Um, settlements that they entered into. Um, you know, or deals that they entered into with, for example, Purdue Pharma involving OxyContin didn't involve individual accountability. I think those days are over. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it was a great speech. Um, and someone who works for her, John Carlin, gave a similar good speech a few weeks earlier. But as I say in the article, uh, the proof is in the prosecution. And, you know, declaring war on white collar crime is kind of like, George W. Bush saying mission accomplished, um, you know, just a few months into the Iraq war when it would persist for years. This speech is going to get stale and the department will lose its credibility if we don't actually see real consequences and real punishment of individual actors as well as businesses where the evidence is there. And again, I'm speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. And the latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she has an article at the Washington Monthly, Biden and Garland Turn Up the Heat on White Collar Crime. And Monica's background is that she was a successful prosecutor as a U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. She went after WorldCom, QWest, Adelphia, and Tyco, and was also a prosecutor on the Enron Task Force. Then she went on to serve as chief of staff to Robert Mueller when he was the FBI director, and then was an assistant attorney general for national security under President Barack Obama and became Obama's White House advisor on Homeland Security. So, of course, you know, Mitch McConnell held her up for a while, but she's there, and she's making her presence felt. And tell us about, though, what she was saying about corporate culture matters. What does she mean by that? You know, I think what she means about corporate culture mattering is that behavior that looks like repeat offending you know, is going to be considered, it, you know, that that if you're caught at one time involved in some sort of money laundering and then shortly thereafter, there's some sort of um, fraud on consumers. And then maybe it looks like there is some Foreign Corrupt Practices Act where someone in a subsidiary is engaged in bribery. Um, they're going to start to wonder whether the whole culture is rotten, which means um, they're not going to be so nice. I mean, they've been really playing nice before. And I think the other thing she means about culture matters is in the speech, she said, they're going to start placing outside monitors inside of corporations. It used to be that it wasn't all that common that after um, the Justice Department caught a company and what looks like crime and enters into these deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreements, it wasn't automatic that they would put an outside monitor in the company. 
But now that's going to be more the norm. I and mean, if you cannot manage your culture, if you cannot keep the people that you work for from violating the law on a mass scale, um, your culture needs some correction, I think is what she's saying. Well, it would seem to me, though, Jennifer, that white-collar crime enforcement would get a huge boost if he could finally put Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit. I mean, this is a guy that's been one step ahead of the sheriff his entire life. There's still so much because of his tactic that he learned from Roy Cohen of running out the clock and taking no prisoners and fighting subpoenas, etc. We still don't know what went on with Deutsche Bank and all those loans when nobody would loan him any money on uh, because he'd taken down so many banks in New York. It's pretty clear that that money was guaranteed by Putin's oligarchs. But there's so much out there. Do you think that what's happening now with Bannon? Because, you know, MSNBC and other other liberal media outlets are, are all excited about Bannon being indicted. But from what I understand is... If he goes to jail, then he won't have to testify. So I'm not sure what kind of a victory that is. But at least, do you think that Lisa Monaco and this DOJ has really got to nail some big fish? And ideally, that would be Donald Trump. I think they really do have to follow the facts where they are. And he seems to be, to me, the, you know, white-collar criminal in chief. And let's keep in mind that his corporation was indicted in New York, um, at the, in the, uh, by the New York County, the Manhattan DA, so that's New, in New York County prosecution there. And that we have New York State, the Attorney General also uh, looking into that, but that we've heard the grand jury, um, a new grand jury has been convened because the other one is, this is again in New York State for Cy Vance's prosecution, um, that a new one has been convened to look more further into some of these land deals and some of these uh, that involve tax evasion. Um, and that we have Mimi Roca out in Westchester County, who's also investigating. And so that continues, and that could turn to a potential indictment of Trump himself. But we should make really clear that in that initial indictment of the Trump Organization, along with the CFO, Alan Weisselberg, the uh, language of the indictment included the fact that there was federal tax evasion involved in the under-the-table employment compensation scheme. So I now that I see Lisa Monaco takes quite seriously white-collar crime, would imagine that both the IRS um, and some part of the DOJ must be investigating that as well. So is there any sense then that corporate America is listening to Lisa Monaco, that they realize there's a new sheriff in town? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look, uh, I mentioned the article that there was a, uh, a you know, a there's a, a um, podcast for corporate compliance officers. These are the people who are not outside monitors, but they actually work inside of businesses who uh, this one podcast ha- held an emergency recording right after her speech and said they were, you know, sounding the alarm that you should visualize an alarm or imagine an alarm is going off, you know, and that this is a speech they expected would happen compared to how Trump had, uh, the Trump administration had been behaving. Also, if you um, check out any major 
corporate defense law firm's website. They have posted memos, but they have probably also emailed to clients about this very speech um, and what could lie ahead. So I think people are definitely, definitely paying attention. And we all remember when the tobacco company executives testified for Congress and said that nicotine is not addictive. There was a similar case recently where the heads of the oil companies testified and denied that they had been um, trying to downplay global warming and hide the facts of, of how dangerous burning of fossil fuels are for, in terms of creating global warming. Is there any th- connection there? In other words, are there any possible laws that could come into play? I know it's not necessarily classic white-collar crime, but the idea at some point or other that companies that are polluting that are endangering the planet have to take some responsibility for their actions? Well, I guess I'd break that down to two things. And on a theoretical basis, you know, you can be indicted for making a false statement to Congress um, if it's made in connection, you know, with a, a particular kind of investigation. If it's um, so, and if you have um, taken the taken an oath, you could also separately be charged with perjury. I don't think that's going to happen. But when you talk about pollution, you know, many of all, many of the um, the environmental laws on the books have a criminal um, have criminal sanctions associated with them. You're looking at the bigger picture than just you know a little bit of Clean Water Act violations here or a clean air. There, you know, those all again have criminal sanctions. I think you're talking about a bigger question, um, and whether the muscle of criminal prosecution could help affect um, our environment and maybe improve the way companies behave. I mean, I suppose that would be nice, but the you know the criminal laws aren't designed to regulate behavior; they're really designed to punish um, non-compliance and to defer, deter non-compliance. And I would argue that when it comes to environmental protection and climate change, our existing laws and standards don't go far enough to protect the environment. We need Congress um, to step up. And we also need you know, pieces of the Green New Deal to fund alternative forms of transportation, alternative forms of energy, so we can save the planet. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Jennifer Taub, white-collar crime has always gotten a back seat, right? It's not it's hard to prove, and white-collar criminals, particularly at the high corporate level, have legions of lawyers. So has it always been an asymmetrical battle, and uh, is that going to change now? So it's usually an asymmetrical battle, but there have been crackdowns, and Lisa Monaco, as you know, was part of that. I mean, when she was on the Enron task force with Andrew Weissman, she received the highest honor the Justice Department bestows for her prosecutions there. I mean, she successfully um, convicted and got jailed various um, executives that were part of um, the, you know, part of some of the Enron subsidiaries. And, you know, I think you you need both a mindset, um, resources, I guess it's three things, mindset, resources, in terms of bodies and money, and the legal tools to um, successfully bring these cases. Uh, with Monaco, she has announced 
The department has the mindset that Garland has her back. They're putting the resources in there by embedding FBI agents right in there to work with um, the white collar team. And I am sure that if the Justice Department believes it needs stronger tools um, from Congress, uh, they will ask. So, um, you know, I, you know, come back and ask me what I think a few months from now. Um, but I, I am very hopeful. Well, Jennifer Taub, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and is currently a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. And her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she has an article at the Washington Monthly, Biden and Garland Turn Up the Heat on White Collar Crime. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a new report from the Congressional Budget Office outlining three different ways to cut $1 trillion from the Pentagon over the next decade. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mandy Smithberger, who's the director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, who previously was a national security policy advisor to U.S. Representative Jackie Speer. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, the Pentagon budget should be cut by at least $1 trillion, but war profiteers won't go quietly. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mandy Smithberger. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mean, we have all this wrangling over these infrastructure bills, which are designed to make life better for Americans, as opposed to kill people abroad. And it's an agonizing debate. The second one, the so-called social infrastructure package, is hanging by a thread. Mansion every other day as an objection, you know, inflation, etc., costing too much, costing too much. You keep hearing all that stuff. And yet the defense budgets go through without any question. And the infrastructure budget was originally $6 trillion over 10 years, and it was $3.5 trillion over 10 years, and now it's $1.75 trillion. Well, what is the defense budget over 10 years? So that's really the question. You are certainly seeing some members of Congress that would like us to be getting to spend a trillion dollars each year, so ten trillion dollars over ten years. They'd like to see growth of three to five percent every year, you know, regardless of what was accomplished, regardless of waste, no matter what we should just be increasing spending. Well, but this new report from the Congressional Budget Office has outlined three different ways to cut $1 trillion in Defense Department spending over the next decade. So that's, I think, a big deal. And I'm astounded. That's why I'm talking to you, Mandy. I'm astounded it's not getting more attention. You know, I am as well. I think with 
all of the challenges that we have as a country, we really need to have everything be on the table. You know, certainly when we're looking at infrastructure and social spending, we need to make sure that those programs are set up to be successful. But we also need to look at the Pentagon in the same way and not only look at what is the cost, but what are we actually getting for this? And I think the Congressional Budget Office puts forward a number of really compelling ideas and approaches for how we could be reducing spending in a significant way without jeopardizing our national security. The CBO report comes from the standpoint of using the national defense strategy that we have now and looking at where are there opportunities for us to have some savings, where, you know, we invest so much in these alliances, how about we rely on some of these allies to help us with our security posture so it doesn't have to be America as the policeman for the world. So this study from the CBO happened at the request of Senate Budget Committee Chair Bernie Sanders, right? Correct. And it offers three different approaches to cutting approximately $1 trillion, a mere 14% of the defense budget? Correct. And there's still, you know, a lot that, in addition to what they look at, where there are other areas where we could be saving money as well. So can you walk us through some of these three different approaches? Absolutely. So one of the approaches is going to be looking at, it's kind of preserving the current Cold War strategy of deterring aggression through the threat of immediate U.S. military response. So it's going, hitting all the military services equally with some new weapon systems slowed down and a few like the B-21 bomber would be canceled. The second strategy is looking at a similarly Cold War strategy, but looking at where we might be able to save money in nuclear modernization in particular. And then the third that I was alluding to before, you know, de-emphasizes the idea of the U.S. military force in regional conflicts and relying on our allies more, ensuring that we're, you know, protecting our key needs like open navigation. So, again, the defense budget it never gets debated in any serious way, certainly nothing like the way these infrastructure packages are being debated and agonized over. So what's your reading then, since you work on Capitol Hill, uh, Mandy, what's your reading on whether or not this will get some attention? Because it's so obvious that there's a direct correlation. You know, when you've got Senator Manchin and Cinema holding up the entire Biden and Democratic agenda because they're afraid of inflation and it's costing too much and it's going to increase the deficit and all that stuff, which is obviously there are many arguments to suggest that those are rather fraudulent arguments. But nevertheless, you would think that this is a time when people will be looking around. I mean, I know people will be looking around for some revenues because the cinema is preventing them from raising money from the wealthy who don't pay their fair share of taxes, over repealing Trump's tax cuts, making corporations pay. All of those things are off the table. So the people <laughs> are looking around for revenues, and as far as I can see, the defense budget is staring them in the face. I couldn't agree more. I feel like there is a big five-sided building, the Pentagon, that they seem to be forgetting to look at where there are opportunity for cost savings. I will say I, I'm cautiously optimistic that reports like these are starting to get more attention, uh, particularly with the pandemic last year. We had amendments offered to cut the Pentagon's budget by 10%. And while those amendments didn't succeed, they got the kind of leadership support that we have not seen in years and years. Uh, and even this year, uh, amendments offered in the House to cut uh, $25 billion that have been increased 
and the budget got a lot of democratic support and leadership support. Unfortunately, not enough to win, but we're starting to see growing power as I think a lot of constituents and members of Congress are seeing there's a real cost to giving the Pentagon a blank check and that you know other priorities aren't gonna be paid for. And even just when you look at the Pentagon budget on its own terms, throwing more money at, at the Department of Defense isn't making us safer. It's making us more likely that we buy weapon systems that are unaffordable, that, are, that we can't support and sustain. And so I think we're really overdue for a debate about what our priorities are gonna be. But those who would like to see the budget go up are hoping that we will rush to the next conflict and you know everything that china does they are saying it's going to be the end of the world so i think it's also important that we need to look at competition and understand that it creates challenges but it's not going to be an existential threat and that we keep those threats right-sized and again i'm speaking with mandy smithberger who's the director of the center for defense information at the project on government oversight who previously was a national security policy advisor to u.s representative jackie spear and she has an article at tom dispatch the pentagon budget should be cut by at least one trillion dollars but war profiteers won't go quietly and the one trillion dollars price tag there that the, the treasury could benefit from comes from a new report from the congressional budget office that has outlined three different ways to cut $1 trillion in Department of Defense spending over the next decade. Now, the opposite occurred recently, did it not, Mandy, that next year's defense budget, I think it was, a, it was the House committee, was it not? And the Democrats on the House committee, as a matter of fact, that added money? So it was bipartisan in both the House and in the Senate. Uh, in both cases, it was amendments offered by Republicans, but they definitely received bipartisan support to increase the top line. So, and that was what, an extra $25 billion? Correct. So that's being challenged? Is that what you're saying? That You mentioned there was a, there was a possibility of $25 billion being cut? Yes. Yeah, so actually, Senator Sanders has filed two amendments on the National Defense Authorization Act, one which would cut the budget by 10 percent and one that would strike the $25 billion that was added in committee. Now, I'm not clear on how many of those amendments are actually going to get a vote, but we certainly are seeing a number of people concerned about that kind of increase. And you know, one of the things that we've heard is that this is kind of a release valve because the Department of Defense has not been able to benefit from the infrastructure package. They haven't been able to benefit from Build Back Better. Um, but you have to judge the Pentagon's budget on its own merits. And both the CBO report and, you know, a lot of the work that we do at the Project on Government Oversight has shown time and time again that a lot of this money is mismanaged. A lot of this money is wasted. And there are lots of opportunities for cuts to make us safer and to be more effective and efficient. But how do you break the connection between these representatives? And we just mentioned uh, it was even a number of Democrats on the, the House Armed Services Committee that added the $25 billion along with, obviously, the Republicans routinely throw money at the Pentagon. So it's a bipartisan problem. But it's based upon, surely, this patronage system uh, described as military Keynesianism, where the money goes to defense plants in the various congressional districts and the military contractors always spread it out like the F-35 has you know bits and pieces of that massive waste of money is uh, sprinkled around various congressional districts and it goes the same for other weapon systems 
And that's why Congress people vote for it, because it, they bring jobs, jobs, jobs to their district. How do you break that system? So I think one of the key areas for breaking that system is for constituents and people to start taking their democracy back, something that we at POGO have created as a new pilot program for civic engagement. Because in so many cases, these lawmakers are only hearing from the defense industry, these defense contractors who want this money, and they're not hearing the other side, that the that constituents would like this money to be spent on other things. There's been polling that showed that people want Congress to stop treating the Pentagon budget like a jobs program. And even if it brings jobs back to their own district, they want us to be buying th things based on what's for best for our national security. But I think we also need to address you know, the corruption that we see in the system, not only in the political engineering of putting jobs across the country so that programs can't be canceled, but the revolving door of congressional staffers and senior Pentagon officials going to work for defense contractors, in many cases as lobbyists, and we need to look at restoring some campaign finance reforms that we had in the past that prohibited these companies from being able to donate, to make political contributions for, in a way that was clearly corrupting the system. Well, that's particularly rich, isn't it? That these are companies, they, they're ostensibly, you know, it's, it's sort of capitalist welfare or military socialism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, these defense contractors, almost all of their money comes from the taxpayer, and yet they're able to take this money and lobby with it and advertise. I mean, you know, you see all these ads about what wonderful stuff Boeing is doing and all this stuff. Can you do something about that? They shouldn't be able to advertise to you know enrich themselves at the national trough at the taxpayer's expense. I mean, that's, as I say, is a little bit rich. You know, it's certainly an area right for oversight and audits. They're, you know, it, technically they're not supposed to be using funds that they receive from taxpayers for those kinds of purposes. And they claim that it comes from, you know, other businesses that they receive. But I think until we have a real audit of what is happening, it's, you know, as an outsider, it's kind of hard to believe that that's actually the case. Well, do you feel, though, that, you know, you've been at this for a while and it's obviously a pretty thankless task trying to get people to understand that we should be investing in this country and in our own people and that military Keynesianism is the least efficient way to create jobs. And we don't have any real enemies out there, nothing like we had during the Cold War. And we haven't won a war since World War II. And the last few wars we've had have been complete catastrophes. There's everything that would indicate that the time is right to have a reevaluation, and yet we have this kind of zombie defense budget that just <laughs> keeps <laughs> keeps getting bigger and bigger and marching mindlessly from one year to the next. I am cautiously optimistic that for all of the reasons that you cite, and I would also point to you know veterans who have come home and seen the ways that senior military leaders lied to the public about what's happening with our wars. Um, and some polling that we've seen from the Eurasia Foundation as well, that particularly younger voters want to challenge the spending and don't think that these numbers, you know, make any sense or make us safer. So I think there is some hope <laughs> moving forward, but we definitely have a tough road ahead for us as long as the system is as corrupt as it is. And do you think that 
a place to start might be to really educate the public about the true nature of defence spending, because we're talking about the budgets as they are, are voted on and argued about. Not that there's much arguing about it. There seems to be you know, more, more like a rubber stamp. But as terrible as these numbers are in terms of the trillions being spent on defence, it's still deceptive because the Department of Transportation is where the Coast Guard has been shoved off to reduce the defence budget. The Veterans Administration reduces the defence budget. The nuclear weapons are sloughed off to the Department of Energy and various other pensions, etc., hidden elsewhere. So have you done an accounting, or has anybody done an accounting of what the real defence budget is, as bad as the $730 billion that's up for next fiscal year, whatever it is? The real number would be what, uh, over a trillion, surely, if you did the proper accounting. Right. It is over a trillion when you start factoring in homeland security, when you factor in, oh, hey, we're borrowing money to pay for this stuff and we owe some money on that as well. So, yeah, you're looking at requests that are much closer to $1.2 trillion a year when you factor in what all of the things that we are spending on for national security. And is that something that is resonating on Capitol Hill or has everybody just accepted the fact that, oh, the Coast Guard's not really a part of our national security or, you know, Department of Homeland Security. The nuclear weapons aren't really a part of it. I mean, it's accounting fraud at the highest level, surely. I think it's kind of an open secret that many on Capitol Hill know that that's the case, but they think their constituents don't care. So I think what really is, what becomes important is for constituents to show that they do care and to talk to their members of Congress and say, hey, why did you agree to increase this budget by $25 billion when it says on your website here you're some kind of fiscal conservative? Like, how do you justify this? I think starting to ask those questions is really going to help members see that they actually need to pay attention to all of the money that they are giving the Pentagon. Well, I thank you for joining us, Mandy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Mandy Smithberger, who's the director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, who previously was a national security policy advisor to U.S. Representative Jackie Speer. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, the Pentagon budget should be cut by at least one trillion, but war profiteers won't go quietly. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.